Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him in to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven. Or, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this encounter that is recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for um, Peter's testimony that Mark was so diligent to make sure he tried to cover everything that he could and hid nothing from us. And Lord, I thank you for allowing us a window into Jesus' authority, but also what he came to do. And I pray by your Holy Spirit this morning that you would stir our hearts to respond, to respond in faith. And Lord, we see that Jesus responds to our faith and extends forgiveness and mercy and healing of hearts and bodies that, that, are, that are corrupted and broken and ultimately dead, Jesus makes alive. So Lord, I pray that that would happen this morning because of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the Eastern culture uh, of hospitality. The nature of hospitality in the Eastern culture is different than in the West. Uh, it's almost a law, and in some places it is a law, that if someone comes to your door, you entertain them, you feed them, you take care of their needs, you meet those needs. And it's interesting because I grew up watching Seinfeld, and I loved the idea of a Kramer living across the hall from me. Like, I love the idea of having that pop-in visitor who you knew, you were like, yeah, man, you can eat anything out of my fridge, that's cool, whatever. And, you know, the, the friends' stories across the hall relationships where anybody can pop in and whenever they want, at whatever hour, and you're like, I long for those relationships, but do we really? <laughs> like, come on, do we really want people popping in all the time? Well, the reality was in this culture, and we don't absolutely, we don't, we're not sure of what home this was. It could have been Jesus' mother's home. It could have been Simon's mother-in-law since he has returned home from a journey of being there initially, doing some stuff, leaving, doing some stuff, and coming back. And so we know he gets to a home, and we know it's packed. It is crowded. And people started showing up early. They got their tickets early and they walk in and they fill this house so much so that no one can get in the door. And we know that it was so full and it was a distraction, in fact, to the people who need to get to Jesus could not get to Jesus. It was so full and the crowd seemed to be focused in a way that they were missing the point that there were some folks that were in need. 
And so Mark 2, 4 specifically says that they couldn't bring him, the man on the mat, to Jesus because of the crowd. It's an interesting indictment. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second. But it is a very, it causes me to think that if the crowd isn't seeing all those that need to get to Jesus, they may have been there for something else. They may have come to see this Jesus show. And the reality is there were people who were being hindered from getting to Jesus. In Mark 2, we know that this this encounter, it moved Jesus in verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Jesus didn't mention the hole being torn in the roof. He didn't mention any of the, the digging or, Wow, that was crafty. But I'm sitting there going in my head, I'm imagining us in our day and age trying to talk to each other, and maybe we're at a church service, but then all of a sudden, you know, that'll do, John, we can get good right here! While we're trying to to listen and engage and talk to each other, and then, all right, I think we hit through the roof, we're we're stuck, I can see Jesus now! I can see Him through the hole, look, right there! And Jesus is looking up, and there's like four eyeballs Two sets of eyes looking down. I can see him. He's right down there. Like, I can imagine the distraction that might have been going on and and the awkwardness of how long it must have taken to get the roof ripped open. Like, what did Jesus do? Keep talking? I mean, the people, how did they listen? How did they respond? But we eventually know that a hole big enough to get a human man on a mat lowered down. I mean, like, I can just, they probably didn't have a pulley system, but I can imagine the squeaky. While everybody's waiting for the, all right, we can see that this is a dramatic entrance. But like, I get it wasn't police. I don't think there were police systems. But I think it was more of just a let's get this guy down as however we can. But I'm amazed at it that Jesus, the wording we see is seeing their faith. Jesus didn't go, man, way to go the extra mile, guys. Way to dig a hole. Way to way to get creative. Way to stand out and get to me because no one else could. It was because of their faith. You see, their actions were a result of something they believed. It wasn't something that they were trying to get to. It was someone that they believed. They had the understanding that this Jesus was different than anyone else who's ever walked on the earth. And so if anyone's capable of healing this friend of ours, this guy can do it. You know, we don't know who instigated or who initiated this mat-carrying process. We don't know if it was the four friends because they were paying attention going, oh wait, Jesus is coming through. He's coming through town. Dude, we need you. Let's get you to Jesus. Or if it was the paralyzed man going, hey, I've heard stories. I need someone to take me. But regardless of who initiated it, we see Jesus responded to the faith, not the work of digging through the, the ceiling. The digging through the ceiling was just a mark of them believing that Jesus was capable of something unlike anyone else on the planet. Now, what's interesting about this, my wife, my wife and I, when we went to a Disney World before we had children, I'll never forget this encounter. It's one of the most random encounters I think you can possibly have to date. But we're walking in front of parents, and they have one child. And I look back on those days, and I'm like, ha, 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 ha. I was so much smarter then, and I had no children. I knew the answer to everything, and I could have answered this person. Anyways, the dad looks at the daughter. We're walking in front, and the dad looks at the daughter, and he says, Baby, there's a lot of people around here. I need you to hold my hand. 
And the daughter, is, I mean, like clockwork, she just looks up at her dad and goes, Daddy, I can do the chicken dance. I, th- I was dying at the response. I was like, that's hilarious, man. That girl's got comedic timing. But the dad's, the, what the dad said in response to that has stuck with me, and I have no idea. I mean, I know why, but he, he looks at his daughter and says, I'm not asking you to do the chicken dance. I'm asking you to hold my hand. And it's so funny the number of times I have said that phrase to my four children. Now, I'm not asking you to do X, Y, Z. I asked you to do this. And what's amazing about this encounter with these men on the mat and Jesus and Jesus responding to faith, this is one of the things that that is continually revealed in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus responds to faith because he asks us to believe him. The Old Testament is God asking the people to believe them. And see, what we do in our human brains is we go, you know what, I think my idea of what you need from me, God, is better than your idea. I'm smarter than you. I think you need X, Y, and Z for me. And it's as if the Lord is like, I'm not asking you to do the chicken dance. I'm asking you to hold my hand. You know, and as a, we, we don't, this isn't like the first time we see this attitude in the human heart. Um, in 1 Samuel, if you ever read through 1 Samuel, my, it's one of my favorite periods of Israel's life because they reflect the middle school child. Really, really well. And what I mean by that is that they have gone into the phase of, we want to be like everybody else. I mean, and that's what middle school is, right? You look around and you go, I just want to be like everyone else. I don't want to get laughed at. I want to to blend in. I don't want to do anything out of character. I just want to blend in. And the reality is in 1 Samuel, you see kind of this history of leadership that you're walking into. And Israel is looking around at all the other nations and going, we need a king like they have. We're tired of fighting wars with clay pots and ram's horns. We want swords. We want crowns. We want armor. We want everything they have. See, there's a problem with that because God was their king. And God expresses this to the prophet at the time and says to Samuel, look, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And a king will break their heart. I mean, he tells Samuel, hey, go tell the people, look, if you guys get this king that you want that's really strong and stands out and looks like the rest of the nations around you, he's going to take your kids, he's going to take your land, he's going to take your stuff, and the people are like, we don't care, we want a king. And God says, okay, you can have a king after your own heart. And unfortunately, the selfishness that was reflected in the people's demand was also reflected in Saul. Saul was this king, stood a head taller than everybody else. Everybody thought, this is the dude. This is what we've been wanting. Everyone look at our king, this man Saul. He's awesome. And the reality is they had rejected God as their king. And Saul does some things that reflect the character of the people. And he actually is disobedient to one of the Lord's commands. And the Lord says to Saul in a specific battle, I want the entire enemy destroyed. Nothing left. Everything wiped out. And Saul, in his kingness, says, I'm going to do that, kind of. I'm going to bring the king back as a prisoner, and then I'm going to let our people plunder all their goods, and that should be good, right? Well, the problem was, it was disobedience. And Samuel confronts Saul with these words in 1 Samuel. He says, But Samuel replied, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt sacrifices and offerings or your obedience to his voice. Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat 
of rams. See, if you and I are not careful, we can convince ourselves that our good idea about how God can use us or what God needs from us is better than the good news. Do you know that? We can see ourselves as being more compassionate or more intelligent and going, God, really what you need from me is this, this, and this. When Jesus said the only work the Father demands of you is that you would believe in the one he has sent. We think we are more uh, compassionate or more intelligent or we know better than what God wants of us. And the reality is Jesus is seen here responding to faith. But Jesus responds in a very strange way, doesn't he? In verse 5 it says, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now Mark chapter 2, we begin to see not only does Jesus respond to faith, but we see what his primary task is. And the reality is, for many of us, we would look at this and kind of go, what? You know, I'm thinking of the four guys carrying the guy on the mat who is paralyzed. This guy can heal him, he can get up and he can walk out on his own. And, and, and wait a minute, did he just tell him his sins are forgiven? No, no, no. Jesus, we need a fifth for our basketball team and this dude, he could be that guy. Get him up off the mat. We need him. Thinking about the crowd sitting there going, if this crowd was showing up to see a show, they would have been like, boo, less sin forgiving, more power of God stuff. I got my popcorn. No one wants to see that. The religious leaders, we know how they responded in verse 7. What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Probably how many of us might see ourselves responding, thinking that the most compassionate thing that Jesus could do was heal this man, make him walk. When the reality is, firstly, this man had another need that Jesus stood ready to meet. And in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 8, we are introduced to the understanding that Jesus knows hearts. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked the religious leaders, why do you question this in your hearts? Now, I'm guessing this didn't just apply to the religious leaders of the day, but Jesus probably knew the heart of the man who was paralyzed better than the man knew his own heart. But chances are, because Jesus said to this man at this moment in history, my child, your sins are forgiven, this man knew what had happened. And as I was reading through this multiple times this week, I just had this picture of a man. I don't know if he was paralyzed from the waist down, from the neck down. I don't know what could move, what could not. But all I saw was a man laying completely motionless, laying before Jesus and hearing the words, my child, your sins are forgiven, and tears welling up in the corners of his eyes and just running down his... Like as you're laying there, if you've ever laid in bed and cried, you can feel the tears and they pool up back here. You can feel it. You know what's happened. And this it's, it's the, the image that I can completely see in this man's heart because he has heard the words from the author of life, the one who can forgive sin, the one whom sin is ultimately against, say the words, you are forgiven. And I don't, I, I just sit there and go, man, this is huge. Because we're seeing what Jesus is first and primary reason for coming is introduced to us ultimately. Now, I do have to address the alternative in the church world because in the church world, 
we have a way of using Christian language and Christianese and Christian thoughts to mask that we don't want to be inconvenienced. And what I mean by that is it's the I'll pray for you, brother, I'll pray for you, sister mentality when a need is physically before us. Where we see in James, ultimately, the short of it, the Jason translation is, if somebody asks you for a sandwich or a coat, and you say, I'll pray for you, you have missed it. No, if someone says, I need a sandwich or a coat, you don't say, you need forgiveness of sin. You say, I'm going to get you that coat, I'm going to get you that sandwich. There is something in the church that has missed how we are to meet physical needs in the moment as we can. We just ultimately say, I'll pray for you, or we use the spiritual lingo to cover we don't want to be inconvenienced. But the reality is, Jesus looks at this man who has a very clear physical need, and he meets his primary need first. Everything else becomes secondary in relationship to Jesus' primary task. We're not limiting Jesus. Yes, Jesus came and did miracle working. And yes, he did speak to social justice issues of the day. Yes, he did come to teach. But firstly, he came for a reconciliation mission. Or to put it in John the Baptist's words in John 1.29, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... Forgiveness is usually extended by the one who is ultimately offended. And all sin is ultimately against God, firstly. It's not just a me messing up or me making a mistake, but it's a rift in a relationship between God and between others. And so for Jesus to say, I forgive you, you are forgiven, he was speaking in the place of God saying, you're forgiven. All sin ultimately being against God. The Father. And believe it or not, the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performed was the forgiveness of sin. A human heart going from dead to alive is the greatest miracle that there is. One theologian put it this way it meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, it brings the greatest blessing and most lasting results. Jesus said to the immoral woman who washed his feet in Luke 7, your sins are forgiven. Faith has saved you. Go into peace. In Matthew chapter 26 at the Last Supper, Jesus said this, For this is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and His people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. In Peter's early sermon in Acts chapter 3, Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. And the apostles, when they spoke the gospel, there were other elements that they touched, but they had a first primary message in Acts 14. But the apostles stayed there a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord. Listen to this. And the Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs and wonders. The secondary pointed to the first. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul announces it this way, God, He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. 
Should we refuse to acknowledge Jesus' rescue mission of pulling people from sin, from death and darkness, to the kingdom of His dear Son, we miss Genesis to Revelation, the reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful people. I understand people using lingo like, Jesus came to help us understand who we are fully. That we're just kind of missing the point, and Jesus is kind of telling us the point, and then we just kind of fall into that. And I, 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 I get that. There are elements to truth in that, that we are not who we were meant to be, obviously because we are slaves to sin. But when we refuse to recognize sin, we refuse to recognize what Jesus came to deal with. Thankfully, God in his plan saw a rescue for us. Something in us had to be transformed and it was not possible by works, good deeds, good attitudes, good thoughts. But it was done by what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. But Jesus also addresses the tough question of the hour. I mean, I can imagine being a person sitting in that crowd and hearing Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And then that person being sarcastic like, but how does he know? Like, how does that man on the mat know he's forgiven? And Jesus goes, you know what? I'm going to ask the toughest question of the hour on my own. Verse 9. Is it easier to say the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Jesus knows all hearts. He knows the sarcasm, the cynicism that rests in us. And he asks the tough question for us. Yeah, some of you are sitting there going, well, how does he know? I'll tell you how he will know. And in verse 10, he says this, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we have never seen anything like this before. In the Jewish community, there are phrases that are known as the how much more arguments. And what I mean by that is there's the lighter argument and then there's the weightier issue that comes behind it. And so it would go like this. If God would authorize Jesus to visibly heal the effects of humanity's fallenness, would not God call Jesus to just deal with the fallenness itself? And Jesus used these type of arguments, the lighter for the weighter, the weightier, in the Gospels all the time. The idea of if, if God did send Jesus to take care of the effects of humanity's fallenness, why would he not also just give him what it takes to destroy the fallenness itself. So when we refuse to, re- when we go, well, Jesus came ultimately to do these th- couple of things, and we reject the idea of him having to obliterate and destroy the power, the penalty of sin, we miss Jesus' primary task for coming. So in Mark chapter 2, we ultimately are seeing the pictures of Jesus becoming clearer. He responds to faith, he knows hearts. He came to forgive sin. Now, the beauty of this is, what I love about the scripture, in in fact, is sometimes I I, I take myself and put myself in some of the character roles. And how would I respond? And this morning, that's what I'd like to do as we kind of conclude our time together, is I'd love to, to ask you to put on those imagination caps, if you can, and consider, my wife and I saw a movie a couple years ago called Vantage Point, and it's like this crime thriller, whatever, uh, but it's the same movie, 
like six different times through different perspectives. So you know the gist of how everything goes, but you see it, you watch it five or six times, and it's this, the same movie but different views. And so this morning, maybe you could put yourself in one of these, these shoes in this story, in this encounter. And the first one being that of the role of the crowd. I consider them one character in this situation. And what I noticed about the crowd this week is they were standing around causing a scene. They wanted to see something. They wanted to experience something. But while they stood around, the people who were trying to get to Jesus could not. I mean, it's clear as day in the scripture. They couldn't get Jesus or they couldn't get this man on the mat to Jesus because of the crowd. So the questions that I began to ask was, do I make way for those who need to get Jesus to Jesus? Or am I just standing around for a show? Is there anything in my life that would actually become a hindrance to others making their way to him? We are all in need, but that the crowds would not make room for this man to get through caused me to think they were there for a show. They were there to see something and hashtag it and tweet about it and Facebook it. But the reality is there were people who had very real needs that could not get to Jesus. But fortunately, there were four friends who did not settle and the crowd did not win the day. See, for for Christ followers, most of the time we are. Our direction and what we think and what we consider is determined by the crowd, is it not? I'm telling you. It's a very real argument. We look at the crowd and go, the crowd just chants that Jesus is dumb, the church is dumb, the Bible is fiction, you're all dummies, you're all using them as a crutch, and we all go, well, maybe we are. And maybe we are. Maybe the masses are right. There's a whole lot of angry people saying all the same thing, so maybe it's true. And we allow the mob rules mentality to direct us in going to Jesus. Maybe going to Jesus isn't that big of a deal. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe I don't need to be generous. Maybe I don't need to pray. Maybe I don't need to give. Maybe I don't need to be a part of a church. Maybe I don't need to know others in community and serving together. The mob says it's not a big deal, so why not? But I am so thankful that this story is recorded for us to see that these four men did not allow the crowd to determine their direction. Thankfully, trust in Christ won out that day, and there was much rejoicing, literally. When you're one of these people, so whether you're the crowd or maybe you're the friend, maybe you're the one, and and look, here's the deal. I know we all have our stuff. We all have our junk. We all have our baggage. We all have our issues, okay? But sometimes in this Christian life, we actually feel like, man, I want to carry this person's mat to Jesus. I want to get one in the corners. I may not be able to carry the whole thing, but a couple of us getting together, looking in the same direction, we can get this dude to Jesus. We can make this happen. And the beautiful thing about this is that this is how Christian community works. They didn't let the crowd win. They said, we see how desperately you need Jesus. Now, some of these people on the mat, they might be arguing with you. They may be angry at you for trying to get them there, but they maybe they begged you. Maybe they were like, you've got to get me to Jesus. But maybe you're one of the friends in this situation, in this scenario. They didn't say this is too hard or Jesus is too busy. They actually went up on a guy's roof, had shovels and rope, dug a hole through a guy's roof. I don't even know if they paid for it afterwards. 
Some of you in this room are probably going, I wonder if they paid for it. That wasn't very Christian of them. It wasn't very Christian for them to dig through a roof and not pay for it. But then we consider the religious leaders. See, no one wants to look at the lens through the religious leaders' eyes because none of us wants to admit that we're front and center with Jesus, but we're just taking up space. None of us want to admit that we've come not to hear truth, but to be critical, cynical, and point fingers at everything about who Jesus is and what he's done. My question is, what if the religious leaders had come not just to be critics or point fingers, but to actually hear truth and respond to it? Now, I do know in God's sovereign plan, he had those religious guys sitting front and center with Jesus because he wanted to wreck their world. He wanted to show them that he was changing the game. And these religious leaders who were put in charge to shepherd the people were failing at their job. They had missed the Messiah and they had come ready to critique not to encounter the living God. The religious role is a very difficult one to see yourself in, but nine times out of ten, if you've been a Christian a long time, this can be a trap we fall into. And then lastly, there's seeing the dude on the mat. And what's crazy to me about this one is that the problem with most of us in this room is that we would never, ever, ever, in a million years, ever, never, ever, want to be the one on the mat brought in to see Jesus. Because we are so concerned about what someone else might think of us. What someone else might say, oh, that person's got some junk. They're on a mat. That person really needs Jesus. Is there anything wrong with either of those statements? No. (laughs) It's like the most honest thing we can say about ourselves. I got junk. I need Jesus. But yet, in the church, we're so concerned about appearing we need a mat. This is the hardest, I guess this is the most difficult part for me in watching this is going in my own heart. Would I be afraid for four friends to walk through that door with me on a mat? Would I be so insecure and so proud that I wouldn't let somebody do that? They'd carry me all the way to the door, but before we walked in here, jump up. Everything's good. Everything's great. Yeah. But it's, it's what we do, right? It's the game that we play. So none of us wants to be the person on the mat, but ultimately we all started on the mat So this is how Christian community works. Sometimes you're the one on the mat. Sometimes you're the one carrying the mat. But then sometimes in the off chance, you're on a mat. Somebody else on a mat says, hey, can you get me to Jesus? But then I say, hey, I'm on a mat too. I don't know how to do this. How about we try and scoot each other towards Jesus on these mats together? And I want to show you a picture, hopefully, that you... This defines Christian community to me. Um, If you ever watch soccer or football, um, if you watch it you know that one of the most ridiculous, like, antic moments where there should be circus music playing is when the guys with the stretcher come out and try and carry an injured player off. It's one of the most ridiculous things you'll ever see. But this is one of the most ridiculous moments of rescue I've ever seen.
I need you to know that's what Christian community is like. I need you to understand that there are times when you are the friend. And there are times when you're on the mat. And then there are times when people who should be on a mat are trying to carry people who are on a mat. And it looks like disaster. That's what it looks like. But the beauty of it all is that we're all headed to the same place, to Jesus. Where we're wanting to go, where we're wanting to get, in our stumbling, in our... I mean, it, you should watch... Go online and watch Football Stretcher Fails, okay? There are millions of them, and they're ridiculous. But it's, it's, if you want a picture of what Christian community is like, that's what it's like. But the beauty of all of this is that we do that headed towards Jesus. That's where we're going. We're like, my best intention is I'm on a mat and I'm falling on you trying to get you to Jesus, but we're all going to Jesus. Let's go see him because he's the one who can offer the healing. And don't miss, don't miss that when Jesus touched this man, he immediately popped up. Because the reality is, Jesus could have been like, look, I'm going to heal you right now, but give it about eight weeks, man. Don't, don't get too crazy. Don't get too involved. Um, you're going to need to use these stretchy bands that I'm going to order for you on Amazon from heaven. A drone's going to carry it down to you and it's going to deliver. You're going to need to ice therapy a couple of times. And about eight weeks in, you'll feel the full effect of the physical healing. But the physical healing, the immediacy of the physical healing is reflective of faith put in Christ and what happens at that moment. God is not giving you a 30-day trial, divvying out forgiveness. Oh, mm, uh, you're about 29% downloaded in forgiveness, but nah, let's pull some of that back. I've been watching your attitude. It stinks. The reality is, when faith shows up, rescue is present, forgiveness of sin made available to the one who's on the mat. They get up and they walk out. And the beauty of forgiveness is this thing where we as Christ followers get the gift of repentance, where we get to say, Lord, I'm confessing that I have had these other idols in my life as a Christian and your forgiveness stands ready and you hand us everything. Relationship restored. Confession is what we do because forgiveness has been extended to us. We confess and Jesus is like, yes, yes. The beauty of instant in this picture, reflective of what happens at confession. And so this morning as we close, outwardly, even though you and I may have the physical scars of our inward sin, we walk out carrying our mat. We walk out carrying our mat, not just healed from being broken, not just well because I was sick, but dead made alive. We weren't getting tweaked by Jesus. We were actually being brought to life. And it's a, through faith. You know, every single one of us, the human heart, the right here, every single one of us was meant to hear the words, my child, your sins are forgiven. And this is a gift by faith. 
I don't know why God decided to do it through faith and not through works like everything else in the world talks about. But his ways are not our ways. And when it comes to salvation, the good news is a person, not advice. Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? That's what we're invited to wrestle with. And this is what the gospel of Mark points us to. My child, your sins are forgiven. Our elders and uh, some of our gel leaders are going to be standing over here. And I, I don't know, this is something we're trying to get better at as a church and just saying, hey, I could use some prayer. I'm on a mat and I'm out. All right. These people want to just pray. They don't want to make you fill out a card. They just want to say, we stand with you in these moments that you're on the mat. And there may be some of you that are like, I've never really considered this Jesus. I got questions about him. I'd love to chat with you. I'd love to pray with you. Pray with you. I'd love to begin a conversation with you. But don't let it just sit. When Jesus stirs, I think something in us goes, oh man, it's primary. It no longer is periphery. It is primary. I need to get to the bottom of who this Jesus is. Because if he is who he says he is, it changes everything. Lord, thank you so much for loving us. And I just ask that in these moments, you would cause in us a response to your goodness. Lord, that you would, would see us and we would see you. And in that seeing, you would make us whole and you would make us well. And we would stop trying to be made well in things that will not make us well. Lord, ultimately we do, we just, we, we say thank you for dealing with sin. The issue of sin that you came to kill, that the, the sinful nature that has control over us, you came to release us from its power and its penalty through your death on the cross. Give us bigger glimpses of who Jesus is through the Gospels. And if we have small views of who he is, would you introduce yourself to us? In your name we pray.